Alrighty. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 24? We're going to continue through uh, an incredible part of God's Word as we journey through Matthew's Gospel together. Um, but as we get into that, do you ever get a sense of deja vu? Like, for example, do you remember me asking this question before somehow? Deja vu is one of those weird experiences where you're in this moment and you go, haven't I been here before? Didn't this happen? Didn't that conversation happen? Didn't that person say that exact same thing? Have I seen this episode before? Uh, you just got this feeling of familiarity about what's going on. And sometimes it's just this brain uh, loop thing that's gone on and your memory's playing tricks on you. And no, it's never happened before. Your mind's just playing a, a bit of a trick on you. But sometimes it literally is a case of history repeats itself. There are things that happen that aren't all that different to things that happened before. And so our memory is rightly saying, I think I've seen this. I think I've heard this. I think I've been here before because there's something really familiar about it. Like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Many of you heard that phrase and it's a very true one. Last week we heard Jesus' warning about these repeating patterns in history where there would be waves of pain that he referred to as birth pains where things happen and yes they look a bit different each time but there are going to be repeating events through history and the pain of those events are going to teach us something very very important things that we need to be reminded of frequently and it feels kind of heavy hearing Jesus talk about these things that would happen in the whole world things that would happen particularly for his people but actually to be forewarned is to be for yes I thought it wasn't just me who knew that phrase so that's great to be forewarned is to be forearmed and Jesus is actually doing a huge kindness when he speaks on very heavy themes because to ignore what's coming up and just say well no one wants to hear about that kind of stuff would actually to be to allow us to be um, just completely thrown at the mercy of the events and circumstances of life when these things come upon us suddenly. So Jesus very kindly warns us of the sorts of things that are going to be happening in life, things that might otherwise devastate us, might otherwise throw us into turmoil, might otherwise cause us to doubt God's goodness. And he's saying, look, there is a plan. These things are unfortunately part of what you'll experience in life, but don't worry. In the midst of these things, by the grace of God, you will endure to the end. And the gospel will go out to all nations and God's plan will come to its right conclusion. So Jesus is preparing us for the difficulties that we'll discover in life as he speaks on these themes. Now today we get up to a point in the text where Jesus goes into um, a lot more detail about an event which is far less frequent than the general sorts of things that he has been speaking about so far in the chapter. He goes into talk about a very specific set of circumstances that you're not going to see happening all the time but they are a set of circumstances that you need to know about and be ready for because action will be important when those circumstances do arise. So we're going to learn a fair bit about that this morning. Uh, has anyone ever been through history class in school? Bible college, uni, any of those places? Who loved it? Can't be honest, who loved it? This is where I might say, I see that hand. There's not many hands, to be honest. Not many people love history. We are actually going to dive through a fair bit of history today because um, the words of prophecy that Jesus gives here and that Jesus refers to in the passage we're looking at today have actually been fulfilled on a number of occasions in the events of history. And when you see how history and prophecy come together, those stories are amazing and they give you great confidence about how things will happen into the future. So we are 
are going to talk a fair bit about history today. So if you're one of those people, and I've got to fess up, um, church history is one of the most exciting topics you could ever study, but I found that class in Bible college really hard. Sitting, listening to the stories sometimes isn't all that engaging. So I will try to be, be brief, I'll try to keep to the point and make it really punchy, but if you find history hard and find yourself kind of going, oh man, can't we just talk about what I'm going to be doing this week? Don't worry, as we get to the end of the stories you'll see that, aha, uh-huh, there's a really good reason why I need to know this stuff and it was worth spending that time. So let's um, pray together and let's dive into the text in Matthew 24. God, we have an incredible privilege of being able to access your word, the word that you inspired, the word that you gave us because every part of it is good and profitable. It makes a difference for our lives now and it prepares us to enter into life eternally. Uh, So as we study it today, as we uh, dive into the ways that you have already fulfilled its words in human history, Lord, may it excite us, may it encourage us, may it equip us for what you know lies ahead of us and what Jesus took the time to tell us about. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just remind you of what's going on in the story as we've been journeying through Matthew 24 together. And if you've been here over recent weeks, this will be really familiar to you. Um, Jesus uh, was leaving Jerusalem and as he was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. And he replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And so the disciples, thrown by this revelation from Jesus about something that was going to come up, but was obviously going to be really terrible, they ask him this question. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And, and they're thinking that this is the one set of events that they're asking questions about. And Jesus, as we've explored how he answers the question in those following verses, says, well, actually, there's a number of events that I need to speak to you about. And he begins telling them about those events as he answers that question what is the sign of your coming what is the end of the age and when are these things going to happen these things that you've just been telling us about this destruction of the temple and so on now we're up to verse 15 in the story uh, where Jesus is about to go into great detail about a particular set of events coming up that um, he, he wants them to be very acutely aware of so that when they happen they see them they recognize them and they act Um, So let's dive into verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24. And like I always say, um, I always love it when you have it in your lap in front of you, um, but it's on the screens for you as well. Matthew 24 verse 15. So, Jesus continues, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, Matthew includes a little note here, let the reader understand, as Matthew writes out his gospel, he really wants to highlight this fact, hey, what Jesus is saying here is super, super important. Please make sure you take the time to understand what Jesus is talking about. Then he goes on recording the words of Jesus. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in a winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great distress. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. And Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. 
So notice in verse 15 that Jesus points us back to the prophet Daniel and Matthew urges us to apply ourselves to understanding what Daniel wrote about and what Jesus is now referring to. And so I want to encourage you this week, go back, read Daniel, read the whole book, it's awesome, but read particularly chapters 8 to 12 and you'll get a lot more information than I have time to give you today. So Daniel 8 to 12, if you want to make a note, I'll refer to it today, um, but we don't have time to unpack all of the incredible riches in that passage. So really um, do what Matthew suggests, let the reader understand, go back, really dive into that scripture, you'll find it very well worthwhile. But as we think about what uh, Jesus is talking about here, uh, what is this abomination that causes desolation? And why should we care about it anyway? We read these weird words in Scripture. When you see this happen, you know, make sure you act quickly. You know, is that of any relevance? I mean, I don't often spend time thinking about, hey, watch out, the abomination that causes desolation might be coming. Is, are we supposed to be aware of it? Because Jesus, in the passage that we've just read, is saying to his disciples, hey guys, pay attention, watch out for this, know about this. So, so what does it mean to us and what is this all about? Jesus is warning about a terrible event coming up. This abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place that we are meant to understand coming out of the prophecy of Daniel. And as soon as we see that, uh, followers of Jesus should run for the hills because as it says in verse 21, there's going to be a great distress, a kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. And that's serious, isn't it? If you think about all the kinds of distress that the world has seen, if this is above all of those, it's going to be terrible. So it's worth us paying attention and being ready for it. In fact, verse 22 told us that unless God shortened the days of this distress, no one would survive them. So how do we understand what this is all about, what this abomination that causes desolation is all about, and, and how do we action uh, ourselves so that we're ready to do something about it? So I'm going to tell you the story, and again, apologies to those who fell asleep in history class, but I think you'll find this story really, really interesting, and I hope that there'll be a bunch of you who aren't satisfied just with the very condensed version I give you and go away and learn more of the story. Um, when Jesus spoke about uh, the abomination that causes desolation, and when he says to his followers, hey, when you see this then be ready to act, that would have been really confusing to his followers who were listening to him. It would have been very confusing to any Jewish person of that day and in this day as well. Because Jews today and back then understood that the abomination that causes desolation is something that happened before the birth of Jesus. It happened in the era of a ruler who we'll get to know in the story that I'm about to tell you. So Jesus' followers would have gone, oh, actually, we thought Daniel's prophecy had already been fulfilled, but Jesus, you're telling us to keep an eye out for a future fulfillment. And that would have been quite surprising to them. So Daniel wrote about this thing called the abomination that causes desolation. He was in Babylon, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, at the end of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Persian Empire. And to, to just kind of give you the rough dates, we're talking about six centuries BC. So we're talking a long time ago that Daniel wrote uh, all of this prophetic stuff. And the vision that God gave Daniel uh, was that there would be this warrior king that would arise 
in Greece. Now, Greece at that time in history was not a major player on the world stage. It was all about the mighty Persian Empire. But Daniel has this prophecy that this warrior king would arise in Greece and he would storm through and overthrow the Persian Empire and the whole world would kind of be reshaped by this king and his empire. But he would not live a long time and his kingdom would not go to his descendants. In fact, it would be split up into four rival kingdoms. Keeping track so far? Okay, now one of these kingdoms would actually, out of one of them would come another ruler who wouldn't seem that impressive at first, but through deceit, through manipulation, through false promises, through political intrigue, as well as through military endeavours, would become very, very powerful and he would exalt himself even over the God of heaven. He would make binding promises to God's people and then he would betray those promises halfway through. He would put an end to sacrifices at God's temple uh, and he would set up what would be called this abomination of desolation on a wing of the temple, so in the temple grounds. And so Daniel describes, again, read through the detail in chapters 8 to 12, in great trouble, uh, in great detail, all of these troubles that would arise as this aggressive ruler comes out of one of these four kingdoms, sets himself up against God and against God's people. That's what the abomination that causes desolation is all about. Worship of the temple put to an end, this false worship put in, and great misery and suffering resulting. So for the the Jews who were listening to Jesus speak about this, um, they were thinking back to Daniel's prophecy that I've just kind of summarised, and then they were thinking back to the events of history from around 175 BC. So remember Daniel, six centuries earlier? Uh, Then they're thinking of events that happened one and a half centuries earlier that seemed to fulfil all that Daniel talked about. Who's that warrior king? Yeah, you guys know history. Alexander the Great, right, came in, overthrew the Persian Empire, just like Daniel prophesied. Um, His kingdom came to an end rapidly. He died early. Um, His descendants didn't inherit it. Fascinating story. If you're a history buff, go read all that stuff. It's crazy. But it ended up being split up into four kingdoms. And uh, let me put a a picture on the screen for you. Um, By the time of 175 BC, uh, when the disciples will be thinking this abomination that causes desolation happened, by then the Roman Empire had come onto the world stage, two of those Greek kingdoms had now been incorporated into this Roman Republic and you can see those on the western and northern part of what used to be Alexander's empire. But there were still two powerful Greek kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom in the north and the Ptolemy kingdom in the south. Now a ruler came up in the Seleucid kingdom and his name was Antiochus IV um, and he gave himself the title, the epithet, Epiphanes. So he's known as Antiochus for Epiphanes. And the word Epiphanes, if you're not familiar with it, means God manifest, you know, the one who reveals God. You know when somebody says, I've had an epiphany, it's like, I've seen God. So this guy considered himself to be, what? God on earth. If you've seen me, you've seen God. That gives you a bit of an idea of what this character was like. And as soon as he rose to power, seeing the threat on his western border from the expanding Roman Republic, he decides to consolidate his power by overtaking the Ptolemy kingdom to the south. Those, those guys have been at war throughout the, the last century and a half. Um, and he figured if he could flank Rome, um, he would be able to defend his own empire more successfully. So the first thing he does is he wants to consolidate 
consolidate his power in the area he already rules. You don't go to war against somebody else if your own borders aren't secure and if you haven't kind of put down any unrest and all that kind of thing because plenty of kings have marched off to war only to get back and find they've lost their kingdom. So that's the first thing that Antiochus started doing. And one of the areas that he really needed to make sure he had locked down was that area right getting toward the border between the two kingdoms. What's that land? It's Israel, right? It's the city of Jerusalem, it's Judea. And that had been an area that these two kingdoms had fought over a lot in history. Um, there were lots of competing loyalties in that area. Now Antiochus, one of the ways that he sought to control people was through religion and through culture, through beliefs and through you know, everyday lifestyles and practices and also through taxation because an empire runs on money. Now in Jerusalem the way that the um, Judea was governed was through the high priests um, and so whoever controlled the temple controlled the government controlled society um, and so effectively those guys worked for Antiochus. Um, taxes that they collected were sent off to his government so that he could rule his empire and as he's getting ready to go to war against the Ptolemies number one he wants more money he's got to fund the war effort so he's saying to the guys in Jerusalem you need to give me more money more taxes um, who loves paying more taxes? It's a privilege. Oh, good, we're doing stuff. I'd love to give toward it. No, no one likes paying more taxes. So obviously, people were unhappy about that. Um, but not only was Antiochus interested in the money side of what he could get out of those people, he knew that he really had to buy their loyalty. And the thing about worshipping this one true God that the Jews worshipped, it made them very sensitive to things like morals and being caught up in pagan either worship or pagan politics. They kept themselves quite separate. Antiochus wanted them to see themselves as part of his empire with loyalty to him, not to God. And so through the, the, the elite priests, the high priests, he set about changing religion to make it more like the Greek pagan religion, corrupting the laws of Moses and the way temple worship happened to make it you know, inch closer and closer to the way everybody else in his empire worshipped, including the way they worshipped him as a god among men. And so the high priest in Jerusalem, he replaced. Um, the, the, the guy who was the brother of the original high priest was, was more pro-Greek, so he put that guy in. That guy's name was uh, Joshua. He changed his name to Jason because that's more Greek-sounding. He had the priests, for example, um, join gymnasiums and play sport in the nude and do all that kind of stuff that was a part of Greek culture. Sorry for being so graphic. Um, but he was just kind of building in this lifestyle. Hey, we're Greek. We do things the Greek way around here. Um, and so the, the culture, the religious life, the cultural life of Israel became more and more Greek under the influence of this new high priest whose name was Jason. Now as Antiochus then launched into his war against Egypt in the south, thinking that he's got all this stuff under control, that these, um, these Jews are kind of firmly part of his empire, they're, they're, they're towing the line, they're giving their taxes, they're becoming more and more like all the other Greeks, um, then he kind of oversteps a little bit. Um, and as he seeks to get even more money out of these Jews, he um, decides to auction off the position of high priest. Um, because, as I said, um, the, the high priest's job was to send taxes through to the empire. So he basically opens it up, just like the Romans did, by the way, and said, OK, how much money do you think you're going to be able to pay me each year? How much money do you think you're going to be able to get? Whoever promises the most, OK, you've got the job. So a guy by the name of Menelaus gets the job. And so, of course, what's Menelaus done to get the job of high priest? Raise taxes. How happy are people feeling? Not happy. And then to make it even worse, Menelaus isn't descended from Aaron. 
So he's not actually legally allowed to hold the position of high priest. And yes, religion has become more and more corrupt, but there's still enough people who hold to the law of Moses who are saying, oh, we are not putting up with this. And so there's this, there's this rebelliousness that starts to grow up in Jerusalem. Antiochus is away at the war. The guys in Jerusalem say, we've had enough of Menelaus. They, they have a rebellion. They get to fighting. Meanwhile, down in, in, um, in Egypt, the Romans have taken notice of the fact that Antiochus is trying to flank them. They're saying, oh, we're not having this. So they send their envoys down and they basically draw a line in the sand, which is where that expression comes from, and say, hey, step over this line, you're in trouble. Antiochus, realising, oh... I can read the writing on the wall here. He decides he'd better call this whole war in Egypt thing off. So he heads back, back north through Jerusalem. And what kind of mood do you think he's in? Foul. He's in a foul mood. His plans have been turned aside. The Romans have seen him coming and put a stop to it. And he is savagely angry. And he gets to Jerusalem and he sees all this rebellion that's been going on and the way that the more traditional Jews don't want to pay the, this heightened tax and they don't want to allow a non-qualified person to be a priest and, and they're sick of the way that their religion's been corrupted and he says, well, I'll teach you guys a thing or two and he just stamps down on them. Long story short, <clears throat> he raids the temple of, of its treasures. He, sets, um, he stops these sacrifices being offered there. He, he offers pigs in sacrifice to Zeus on the Jewish altar. He sets up uh, idols for Zeus and to, for himself in the temple grounds. All those things that Daniel talked about centuries earlier, Antiochus IV is doing in history. And so um, Jesus' disciples will be looking back and saying, wow, we remember all this happening and it was terrible. Thousands upon thousands of people were killed. In fact, this is how one Jewish source records what happened. After Antiochus had set up this abomination, put real worship uh, to an end, set up false worship in the temple, this is what happened. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. So you can understand when Daniel wrote about a terrible time coming up, an abomination in the temple and desolation that results, they've seen it happen, haven't they? And they think that that's, that's done and dusted. Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled. And you understand why they thought that was the case. Um, it wasn't the end of the story, though, for them. Has anyone heard of the Maccabean Rebellion? So Antiochus, after he's done these terrible things, he's put a stop to Jewish worship, he's set up pagan altars in the temple, this abomination to God and to God's people, and then he's caused desolation, the death of thousands. Off he goes to fight more wars in the eastern part of his kingdom, away from where the Romans are. He tries to shore up that back end of his empire. So after he goes, he leaves generals in charge, and the Jews go, you know what? We cannot tolerate this. And so they rise up in a rebellion. Um, it's a great story. Check it out. Um, amazing things happened. It's celebrated every year at the festival of, does anyone know? Hanukkah. Okay, so if you're familiar with around Christmas time, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, that's the story of how the Jews threw off this terrible tyrant and were able to become independent up until the Romans eventually took over that region just before the time of Christ. Um, great story. Um, so how are the disciples going to respond 
when they think the abomination that causes desolation promised 600 years ago, fulfilled 175 years ago, roughly. Um, now that's just something for people who love history. You know, we didn't do that class in school, history sucks, that's not our deal. But we have a party once a year at Hanukkah and remember the story and it's great. Um, but now Jesus is saying, no, no, it's not actually just about ancient history. I want you to keep an eye out. I want you to understand Daniel's prophecy because it's still coming. And they go, oh, that's pretty serious because that was grim. No, that was grim stuff. And the idea that you might get caught up in that happening again, that's sobering, isn't it? That's terrifying, in fact. So, let's look again at the urgency at which Jesus speaks here. As we look at, again, just at those first few verses from Matthew 24 from verse 15. So when you see the abomination, not hear about it, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. Remember in those days housetops tended to be flat, stairs on the outside. What it's saying is, hey, if you see this happening, don't go down the stairs and then go inside and get packed and and get going. Go down the stairs and go for it. Run, get out of there. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. When you see uh, happening something that looks a bit like what happened with Antiochus IV, some other fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel that you should take the time to get to know, be ready to act straight away. In Luke's Gospel, uh, by the way, where the readers of Luke's Gospel are Gentiles, um, Matthew wrote for uh, Jews, people who knew the Old Testament scriptures, knew their history. So in Luke's Gospel, when this passage um, is recorded, um, Luke just mentions uh, Jesus saying, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, because Luke's readers wouldn't have been familiar with Daniel's prophecy and the abomination of desolation and that stuff, but they still needed to be warned, hey, when you see certain things happening, get out of there. So... Jesus wants people ready to run. He wants people ready to go. And what's been happening in Matthew's Gospel as we've been reading it through? Jesus has been talking with people. And what's one of the questions that the Pharisees and Sadducees tested Jesus on? Taxation from a foreign power. Um, What you don't read so much about in those accounts is how that foreign power, the power of Rome, just like Antiochus, was actively uh, funding new forms of worship to try and get the local people not only to worship the one true God, but also to participate in pagan worship. They were building temples, they were constructing altars, there was all kinds of things going on. In fact, um, by this time in history, over the next decades, we see that the Sadducees, who were the, the priests who ran the temple, they were offering daily prayers and offerings for the Roman emperor at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, now that's... that's Uh, an integration of pagan government with Jewish religion that was never meant to be there. But similar to what happened back in the days of Antiochus, where there was that kind of, hey, let's merge politics and religion, let's let's get you guys on side with, with this foreign power and its beliefs and its culture and customs, the same thing was happening in the days of Jesus and following those days. And what had Jesus been warning the leaders of in Matthew 23? Judgment's coming. You're on a path that has a tragic conclusion and it's not too far away. And he's warning them of that. And so as we get into chapter 24, he's saying to people, hey, as as much as I've just warned the leaders that judgment is on its way, I want to warn you guys, don't get caught up in that. Make sure you recognise where things are going and get out of there 
before it's too late. So how did that happen? Well, in 64 AD, a guy by the name of Gessius Florus, um, there'll be an exam on this later, I mean, <laughs> way of history class if you don't have a test, all right? Governor of Gessius Florus became the Roman procurator in Judea. And uh, Nero was in charge of the Roman Empire at this time, similarly to what was going on in the days of Antiochus. He had wars to fight, he was increasing taxes, he was putting the lean on the, the leaders in those different areas, which included the religious leaders. Hey, I want more taxation revenue from you guys. A lot of the same things were going on. Now, Gessius Florus comes in and he's really motivated to please Nero and get these funds flowing. So he puts the squeeze on the common people, he takes bribes from the religious elites, um, he um, gives preference to the kind of the Greek cultured people who did all their pagan stuff and allows them to um, offend the local Jewish people by um, deliberately provoking them in the way that they did their worship and the way they blocked the Jews from doing their worship and things were getting really nasty and really tense. Um, leading up to AD 66 when there was this group of Jewish zealots in Caesarea and they'd just had enough. They'd had enough of unfair taxes, they'd had enough of no justice, they'd had enough of the provocations of people who didn't think they were loyal to the empire because they didn't worship the emperor and they killed a bunch of these religious elites who, who had been compromising with the Romans. And Florus just came down and just said, right, I'll show you who's boss here. A little bit like Antiochus did when he came back from Egypt. Florus sends a message to the religious leaders in Jerusalem says, right, you need to pay me 17 talents and I'm going to set up idols to Nero and to myself so people can come and worship them. Now, um, when was the last time you withdrew 17 talents from the bank? Yeah. Not lately. Okay. When was the last time you withdrew $45 million from the bank? That's kind of what we're talking about. So you can understand there's some people saying, oh, um, I don't know about that um, because these are offerings that people have given to God not just to sit in a bank vault in the temple. Those offerings were meant to be used to uh, fund the life of the nation to make sure that people were being taught in accordance with God's ways and make sure there were judges to carry out true justice in the land and everything that was a part of Jewish national life was funded through the temple system. And so basically he's bankrupting the nation in order to fund this false worship, this abomination. And the Sadducees, who had been going along with the Romans for years, for decades, they've finally gone, oh, probably can't do that one. We've done a lot. We're sending you a lot of money. We've compromised. We're praying to Nero every day. But we can't do that. People aren't going to put up with that. And Florus is just outraged. So he sends his soldiers in, takes it all anyway, sets up altars to Nero, to himself, um, and does the very similar kinds of things that Antiochus did those centuries before. And uh, so all of a sudden, the conflict is on. It comes about really, really quickly. About 3,500 people are killed in the process. Um, so just like in the days of Antiochus, you've got this corrupt religious leadership, foreign power, false worship, all kind of coming together in this perfect storm. Now, what happened in the days of Antiochus after Antiochus set up false worship and, and killed a whole bunch of people? The Jews were able to stand up. They were able to revolt. And they threw off the yoke of that oppression. And there's a whole bunch of Jews who, when this happens under Gessius, say, you know what, it's time to roll again. Let's do this. Um, we've seen it before. We've seen somebody come in. We've seen somebody set up idols in our temple. We've seen somebody massacre innocents in our city. Um, we're going to rise up now like the Maccabees did back then. And people are rallying to the banner. And what has Jesus warned his followers about? Don't go there. Don't get caught up in that. 
when you see these events happen, when you see this abomination of false worship in the temple and putting a stop to right worship and all that stuff, don't go join the army, head to the hills, run, flee, get away from there. Um, but just like in the days of Maccabees, most of the Jews revolt and it looks like they're really successful. They kick the, the Roman powers out of Jerusalem, they kick them out of a whole bunch of Galilee, um, they take over a whole bunch of fortresses. Anyone ever seen uh, a movie about the fortress at Masada? There was a really cool movie about that years ago. They take over Masada, all these sort of places and it looks like, just like with Antiochus, that they've actually reclaimed their homeland. The Romans are running. They've got their tail between their legs, they're out of there. And the Jews look like they've won a great victory. But it doesn't stay that way for long. Uh, Nero sends a general by the name of Vespasian with legions upon legions into the area to quell the uprising. Now, the religious elites, they see these legions coming in and they know the writings on the wall. And they say, you know what, Romans are very practical people. They're not just going to throw lives away. Let's negotiate a settlement here. The zealots, the common people, say, we've had enough of these jokers. They have offended our God. They've oppressed us for uh, generations. Uh, we're going to throw them off. And so you've got the elites, let's get political. The zealots, let's just fight to the end. And so before the Romans even get there, they've turned on each other. And they've flooded into Jerusalem. Um, armies have come from all the surrounding countryside and filled up the city. Um, and it's, it's a bloodbath. Um, the zealots kind of kill off all the elites and they're ready to fight when the Romans arrive. Um, the Romans do arrive and the zealots, noticing that the elites had stockpiled goods in case there was a siege, they burn all of the food that had been saved up. Why? Because they don't want people just sitting this thing out, riding out, negotiating a peaceful end. They want to fight. They want to bring it on. They want to end this thing. Um, so long story short, a million Jews died in that conflict. Um, it's an interesting military kind of campaign. It's fascinating stuff. I'll, I'll spare you all the stories. Um, it was a tough fight. Um, it was actually a fairly even fight. Um, the, the Jews mounted a very powerful defence of Jerusalem. But the Romans eventually got through, eventually massacred people. About 100,000 were taken off into slavery on top of the million who died. Um, about 60,000 of those, who's ever seen a photo of the Colosseum? Uh, 60,000 Jews were taken from Jerusalem to Rome, built the Colosseum. That's when that happened. Um, and if you've ever seen a photo of this, hang on, this one. Uh, that's the Arch of Titus, which again was built following this time. And if you look really closely, um, check it out on your computer at home later, um, you'll be able to see on the Arch of Titus, there's a picture of some of the treasures from the temple in Jerusalem that were carted off to Rome after the uh, temple had been torn down um, and uh, ransacked. And there's a picture below of Titus in his chariot. Um, so it was just a terrible event that happened around 40 or so years after Jesus is saying these words, hey, when you see this stuff happen, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, somebody who comes in, corrupts your worship, sets up false worship and destroys a lot of lives, when you see that go on, get out of there. Um, because as Jesus knew, when it happens, it's going to be terrible. Um, for those who didn't respond straight away because the zealots got control of Jerusalem, even those who saw uh, the armies around the city and wanted to leave, it was too late. They wouldn't let anyone leave. Um, so as soon as those events started happening, you need to have paid attention and you need to have gotten out of there fast. Because if you waited too long, your opportunity was gone. And sadly, you were sucked up in the terrible destruction that came about as a result of this rebellion against God and a failing to listen to Jesus. 
The interesting thing about this is I haven't told you much of the story from the Bible, which is weird because as you read through the book of Acts, where was the headquarters of the early church? Jerusalem. Where did the apostles base themselves? Yes, they travelled out to various places, but where were they based and spent most of their time? Jerusalem. These are the men who authored the scriptures. Uh, these were the senior leaders of the church. So why isn't the fate of Jerusalem talked about more in the New Testament scriptures? It's actually a really simple answer. They listened. When Jesus said, when you see these things get out what did they do they saw it starting to happen they got out they weren't there to be caught up in the tragedy that unfolded um, so Jesus is being incredibly kind when he says to his followers uh, this is what you need to look out for and this is what you need to be ready to do Jesus spared an enormous amount of suffering to anyone who was willing to listen to his warnings and isn't that what God is like and some of you say, where is God in the midst of suffering? Well, isn't God always warning us about how we can spare ourselves the, the suffering and the devastation that this life often carries with it, whether it's our own choices or things that we might get caught up in? That's what God does. And his people did listen. And for the most part, Christians were not caught up in these terrible events that took place. Um, one of the interesting things about the fate of the Christians at that time in history, it would have been so easy for them to have been sucked in, to have rallied to the cause. I mean, what would you do if somebody invaded Perth? Wouldn't you rally to the cause and want to defend our city? It would have been so natural for them. But they remembered Jesus saying, hey, not only get out of there, but he's made it very clear that when he returns, when the time is right for him to do away with this evil that is going to be present in the world, it's not something that we'll have to kind of initiate. It's something that he's going to do and it's going to be globally obvious. This is what it says from verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will not fall from the skies and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So when this stuff was all going on and people might have been tempted to rally to the cause and defend their homeland, they knew, hey, you know what? Our hope actually isn't in us being able to defend ourselves. Our hope is in Jesus coming back and sorting all of this out. So they did as he said, they got out of there and they waited for the time when Jesus is going to return and make everything right. Did it happen? No. Read Second Peter later for, for Peter's interpretation of what it's like to be waiting for it to happen and also in First Peter as well. So as we look at that, we go, all right, so this event under Gessius Florus, like the event under Antiochus IV of Epiphanes, it is so exactly what Daniel wrote about. It's crazy. But yet not everything has yet happened. Not all the events of prophecy have met up with the events of history. There is still something that we are waiting to see happen. This return of Christ where he will gather together all of his people. Now notice that word in verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days. What does that tell you? It's sobering, 
But what we're seeing here is the fact that there is actually going to be another moment in history, at least one, where these tragic events of the type of Antiochus IV, of the type of Gessius Florus and Nero and Vespasian and all those guys, those sorts of events are actually going to happen again. Sucks to think about, but they are actually going to happen. And in the words of Jesus, in a way worse than anything you've experienced before. Something of that gravity is going to happen. And we need to be able to recognise it when it does. And we need to remember that our job in that circumstance, like the job of those Christians in uh, AD 70, uh, is not to rally to the banner and say, we're going to fight this. Our job is to say, let's get out of here and let's wait for Jesus to come back in a way which is globally obvious because he's the only one who's going to rescue us. So it's a weird kind of scripture. It's a weird kind of occasion. You didn't come to church for this, but we've got to listen to Jesus and say, Hey, just like he said that to his followers on the Mount of Olives, he's actually saying it through the scriptures to us. Hey, if you see stuff happening like Daniel wrote about, if you see stuff happening like what happened with Antiochus and like what happened with Gessus, if you see that kind of stuff going on, and I can't tell you what it's going to look like in detail because you know, we'll know it when we see it, but when you see that, hey, don't get sucked up into it, don't get caught up there, get out of there, Put your head down, wait for the deliverance that will come when God comes. And like Jesus speaks about here, the Son of Man is going to come with power on the clouds of heaven, with great glory. And no matter what's going on and your world is fallen to bits, say, hey, that's going to happen. Deliverance is on its way. And this might be the moment where it doesn't wait for a thousand years or two thousand years. This might be the time where it happens, bang, like that. So as we continue through Matthew 24 and 25, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to tell us more about what we need to do in order to be ready for that line. So are we going to be like the Sadducees of Jesus' day or Jason in the days of Antiochus who um, kind of just try and go along with the world powers, try to fit in, not stand out, you know, just uh, get along as much as possible and find ourselves corrupted in what it means to actually be followers of Jesus, pursue short-term comforts instead of eternal treasures? Or will we be like the zealots of Jesus' day who thought that it was their job to fight for God, but they were actually fighting against him. They were never meant to fight the Romans in the way that they did. Are we going to be people who see the errors of others, who condemn the, the religious elites, but are blind to our own errors and end up doing things far worse than the people we were condemning? Or will we be among the complacent who ignore what Jesus says and when these things happen we just get caught up in it and our lives get destroyed as a result of being unaware of what's been going on? Or the invitation of Jesus here is to be an understanding of the time in which we live and to live in such a way that when Jesus comes in power he finds us ready, he finds us obedient, he finds us that we have listened to what he has said and are responding to that. Let's bow in prayer.